Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ever wonder how Mizzou seems to produce quality defensive linemen and NFL backup quarterbacks? How about why former Mizzou wrestlers want to fight Jake Paul? Or are you curious about why Missouri men's basketball losing a 15-seed Norfolk State in the 2012 NCAA tournament wasn't all that bad? Well, I can guarantee two of those three. But if you want the best information on Mizzou football, basketball, and everything else MU, listen to the Columbia Daily Tribune's Mizzou Sports Podcast featuring me, Tribune Sports Editor Chris Kwasinski. And me, Tribune Mizzou Athletics Beat Reporter Eric Blum. We'll discuss all things Tigers, including Joe Exotic. Did he play for Mizzou? No, but we did have a dentist in town grace the cover of ESPN the magazine. In all seriousness, we'll break down every game, press conference, and big move from Columbia. We'll give expert analysis on Missouri and explain how each result matters to every MU fan. We may sprinkle in some takes on other things, too, like how Shakespeare's Pizza is a can't-miss Columbia experience, but their pizza is just good. Maybe third best in town. Yeah, that shouldn't offend anybody, but if you want the premier, unfiltered, direct podcast on Mizzou Athletics, subscribe to the Columbia Daily Tribune's Mizzou Sports Podcast with new episodes streaming on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other platforms every Every Thursday. This is the Mizzou Sports Podcast, presented by the Columbia Daily Tribune. Welcome to this week's episode of the Mizzou Sports Podcast. My name is Eric Blum, breaking down Mizzou sports with you every week here on the show. Joining me, as always, is the Tribune's sports editor, Chris Kwasinski. How are you doing, Chris? As good as I can be on this rainy day. Yeah, rainy Thursday here in Como, uh, October 28th. Tomorrow, I leave for Nashville. Mizzou plays Vanderbilt on Saturday. It's been over a week since the Luther Burden signings. We don't have a game in the past, really, to review here. It's more so kind of looking forward to the, I guess, albeit, quote-unquote, second half of the season, even though there's five games, even though they're all in conference compared to the seven that have been played before. So I kind of wanted to start off this week's episode by asking Chris, what do you think the end the end game here is for Mizzou, and what do you think might be realistic, or how do you just kind of see the next five weeks playing out here? Yeah, the the end game is is pretty clear. It's you have to win three of the next what was it, five. Yeah, yeah, you got to win three of the next five. You got to find a way to do that. But realistically, I I can see claiming wins over South Carolina and Vanderbilt just because Mizzou is clearly better than those two teams. And but it, it's it's going to be tough. And I think it, it, I know we talked about this a couple of times about you know what what game is the most upset worthy game. And the more that we talk about it, I, I thought Florida at first just because they they've just been so inconsistent. And, you, and like you always mentioned, they always play very strangely at Furrow Field. But it, it might come down to Arkansas. It might come down to whether or not Arkansas is on its game. It, if it, they're overlooking Mizzou at, at some point, it, it it's got to come down to one of those two games. Because I mean, we've talked about it before. They're not being Georgia. As weird as it is to say, and I didn't think we'd be here, both those teams might be 5-6 and six entering that game in Arkansas. That could very well be a possibility. But, and I think it goes without saying, 
Missouri goes into this game against Vanderbilt this weekend. If they don't win this weekend, you can you know spend Christmas with your family. You're not going to have to travel to the Texas Bowl or Memphis for the Liberty Bowl. If they can't beat Vanderbilt, and the more I look at Vanderbilt, this is a great matchup for Missouri, where Missouri's pitfalls have been, and there have been a lot of them, but their main pitfall of the run defense, Vanderbilt is a pass-heavy offense, can't really run the ball that well, don't have much of a push from their offensive line. So if Missouri can't beat this version of this Vanderbilt team, regardless of it being on the road or not, and let's not pretend like Vanderbilt Stadium is that intimidating. I've I've covered one game there before, and that was a Missouri loss. But like Missouri's fans outnumbered Vanderbilt in 2019 there, and tickets on Ticketmaster were still like like 750 after processing and handling for this game to get a pretty nice seat at the horseshoe of Vanderbilt Stadium in in Nashville's West End. So let's not pretend, as Chris drops his phone, that you know we can't see a legitimate path to victory. And being on the road is not a must, 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 must win for Missouri. Like there's going to be way more turmoil if Missouri does not win Saturday. I mean, it's 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 beyond hard times in Columbia, and, and a year thought to be closing the gap. So that that's just I'm hesitant to talk about that because it looks like so far fetched, but Vander from the Vanderbilt perspective, this looks like their easiest win possibly left on the year because they've played eight games, they're two and six, and I think they still have Kentucky, Ole Miss, and Tennessee left to go, and those are three teams who are definitely heading to a bowl. Kentucky and Ole Miss have already clinched that way, and so now it's like, well, we can beat Missouri for our first SEC win since 2019 again, or. We'll, we'll hope we'll try again in 2022. Yeah, it, and just to put it in perspective, uh, Mizzou dropped its injury report about about what, an hour ago, half hour. A little ago. over, yeah, yeah, yeah. just a little bit ago, and and I, I tweeted out being like, "Hey, this is, this is kind of a lengthy report," and and, and a Vanderbilt fan at Vandy underscore sixty two quote tweeted and said, "Mizzou has a lot of injured players. This is our best chance to win a game the rest of the season." Like like Vandy fans are eyeing this as the best chance to win a game, and and it says a lot, especially after coming off that. Uh, that um, that win against South Carolina, where uh, Vandy took a late lead, but South Carolina came back, and so it. There's been a lot of ups and downs, especially with this Vanderbilt program. I mean, it's not, it hasn't been back since. But anything, I would say respectable. I feel like that's too mean to say, but uh, but they haven't been to a bowl since 2018. Yeah, it, and I mean, ever since. But you can go further than that. Say it hasn't really been anything to special since James Franklin left. But I mean. At the end of the day, this is a game where, I mean, you can't you can't take the break off if you're Mizzou. You can't let you can't even allow the possibility to happen, especially with this injury report, which has 11 players on it. Right, and that's the thing is like I mean, we dis saying Missouri hasn't hasn't also been to a bowl since 2018, so you know, but that was more so that that was the two years in Missouri's football history where they were good enough to make a bowl and then didn't because of the NCAA sanctions and then COVID last year. So. I'm going to quickly rattle off the injury report, and then I just remember it's kind of the breaking news that happened right after we recorded last week that we need to talk about, too. Questionable, and keep in mind that I think three of the four from the Texas A&M game, or three of the five that were listed as questionable, ended up playing. So questionable, Abrams Drain, Bannister Byers, Allie Green, and Mike Maietti. Doubtful, Ishberdine, Cooters, Curtis Looper, Sean Robinson, Johnny Walker, and then out. And during our viewing window, the one viewing window we got this week in Missouri practice, Mookie Cooper wasn't there. And... 
that doesn't mean he is no longer on the team, but that more likely means for someone like him because he had merch come out with Mizzou on it this week. And there's, I mean, there's always weird stuff that happens with that. But I think he's injured. He had a alternative activity to do, as well as backup defensive back Devin Butler. But the breaking news that I wanted to actually talk about was right after we recorded, Missouri came out with their injury report last week. And the injury report last week only had three people on it. And that was the season-ending injuries to Case Cook, Chris Turner, and Mason Pack. Pack is a backup safety, only played on special teams a lot, had a pump block last year against Georgia. But it's Chris Turner, who kind of seems like a big loss, never locked down a starting spot, but played a lot over the last five years. Now getting into Case Cook, who is a team captain, a three-year starter on the offensive line, that seems obviously like the biggest loss of these three. And that's why seeing Mike Mayetti on this week's injury report looks that much more glaring. Yeah. And and we've seen it through the media availabilities we had this week where we just asked the offensive lineman that we got. I know uh, Connor Wood kind of mentioned a little bit where he was like, hey, he's taken on a new role and we're really grateful for him. And But it, but it's also like he tried to play through it. I mean, they said that, what did Drink would say on Tuesday? The doctors told him to shut it down after Kentucky and they said, he said no and kept playing. I mean, that's that's a lot of commitment and it's that, that you're missing on the offensive line, but also just a really a stud and a sturdy player too. And uh, you just kind of hit it on yourself. It's now depth becomes an issue, and that's starting to become an issue elsewhere too. Especially with Jamie Petway transferring uh, linebacker a, a little bit now with um, Chad Bailey kind of taking over the starting spot. Blaze Aldridge kind of losing the starting job. Like now that positions is kind of uh, not in flux, but I mean still in, in turn still just a little bit and just kind of up in the air. Which granted, that's what Drinkwitz wanted after the Tennessee game. After, anyway, just saying that, you know everything's open. Go get it. Um, but depth started to become an issue for Mizzou? And in some places, that's why you build up 85 scholarship roster, roster spots. And that's why what happened last year when you hear lack of depth, there's a difference between half your team being contact traced and the depth issues that happened last year where Missouri had to put Sean Robbins in at defensive back, or they didn't have one available compared to the depth we're talking about now, which is depth among players who are SEC quality. And that's kind of what kind of drink what's asked to go through right now at the end of the day it still was only nine days ago that missouri got the commitment of luther burden and that was such a humongous huge deal he's not coming until next you know he's early enrolling and we know that but he's not eligible to play until september 2022 and so this is the team that's here there's no reinforcements coming so if missouri is going to make something of 2021 it's the guys you saw play against texas a&m that's going to have to get it done and you know going into you know just a little bit more about you know the three season-ending injuries we already talked about, it definitely sounds like Pack and Turner's Mizzou careers are over. I mean, definitely for Turner and most likely for Pack based off of the eligibility. I think Case Cook still has one year of eligibility remaining, but based off the statement he put out on social media and then talking to Drinkwitz on Tuesday about it, it kind of sounds like he's leaning towards retirement, if I'm gleaning everything right, just because of how, you know, the multiple surgeries and how beat down his body is. But then again, there's, you know, getting to know Case over the past three years, I mean, the story and the anecdote of him being told to shut it down after the Kentucky game and then basically saying, I'm going to go against doctor's advice, risk my own health because I love football so much and I want to represent Missouri so much is very on brand. Like this guy, I mean, you didn't get to see Case with a mullet. Like if you if you have hair like that, you got to be able to like defend yourself on a football field. Like he had a, one of the nicest looking mullets I've ever seen. And then we just randomly, you know, came back out at spring practice this past year and it just was gone. I'm like, what'd you do with it? And then I wrote a pretty cool score on him, you know, donating it to Wix for kids. But anyway, um, I just think that Case's motivation to get back on the field, especially because I, 
and I'm not saying this just because it's Case and I've developed a professional friendship with him over the years. It's that I think he's good enough to at least maybe try and make it on an NFL roster. Like he's playing as good as the guys in 2019. All three of them either on practice squads or on current NFL rosters. And Yasir Durant. Tristan Colon Castillo and Trevorrow Wallace Sims, not to mention Larry Borum of your beloved Chicago Bears, mm-hmm. and that was the entire offensive line in 2019. Cook is playing at a high of a level and is as good of a locker room guy as any one of those guys. I mean, Colon Castillo, I think per position might showed a little bit more at Missouri, but that's a whole different argument for a different time. And so I just think that you can't count Case out. And if he doesn't come back, it's either he wants to push his luck and try, you know in the NFL way before he gets injured again and, and, and make that money or it, the injuries are going to be so bad to the point where he's not going to play football at all ever again and coaching is what he's going to have to get into permanently yeah and but I mean the players talked about it too I mean the offensive lineman we talked to was kind of saying like hey he's been helping out as a coach a lot I mean someone that can point out different things can point out specific techniques and that kind of stuff and you talk about someone who's dedicating so much of their time to Mizzou I mean if the doctors came up and told you you know you could never do journalism again would you hang out the Tribune so much no. Yeah. See, I mean, like, it's it's all it's all in Case Cook for being for being a stand up guy and, and willing to give back to this program uh, when really he doesn't have to. So I mean, you have to give him props for that. Absolutely, and it's only like there's a recent example of a Mizzou offensive lineman getting injured mid season and then becoming a head football coach in town. If there was that example, <laughs> of course, where it's Jonah Dubinsky, who's now the head coach at Battle, got injured in camp 2019 or right before camp and now is at i think at 24 the head coach of a class five school with over 1500 kids in the state of missouri so that can happen for you here there's routes i mean you know prior to uh jonah being the head coach of battle it was atia ellison who is a missouri defensive lineman played the nfl and now is missouri's director of player development and there's several other examples of guys making it in high school career Michael Agnew being one of them. Will Franklin was a coach. Robert Steeples was a coach for a while. And there's, I'm gonna, if I try and list everybody, I'm going to leave somebody out. Uh, Steve Hack, the head coach in Mexico for a while, was another guy. And just, just that's a route for you. Lorenzo Williams is a head coach in Oklahoma. So guys like that, it, it's a route. But I, I do think that it's possible Case is not done at Mizzou. I, I think that going on in his terms is a really big deal to him. Yeah, especially when you talk about accountability. I mean, that's the guy after the Tennessee loss said, "It's all on me." You know, it's all on me. And and even other losses, he's like, "No, I need to play better. It's all on me." And it's like, well, you're not. You can't play all all eleven positions, case. Like I know what you're talking. Like I know, and, and you respect that accountability too. But it really sounded like, especially from a guy sitting in that point of view, like he, you know, he wants to go on his own terms. He wants to make sure that he goes out in the best foot possible. And and, and I, I think this is a great way to wrap it up. Is I don't care how Missouri does. If Missouri loses the rest of their games. I'll cover them the same way as if they win the rest of their games. If they lose to Vanderbilt, beat Georgia, it doesn't matter. But you want to see the people when you cover these sports. You care you care a little bit about the people. You want to see the people you interact with on a daily basis be successful. And I can put Case up there with anybody that I've covered at Mizzou so far is I want to see him be successful. You know, I think he's a good enough guy, and he, and he will be. So hopefully Case can get back to full health and he's successful in whatever he does. But now Missouri has to – football has to win without probably their best offensive lineman at a position that kind of was decreasing in, in how they played over the past couple of weeks. Yeah, and, and no, it's kind of difficult when you, obviously, when you don't want to overlook a Vanderbilt team, but I mean, they're still an SEC team for, for a reason. You, if Missouri overlooks Vanderbilt, it's, it might be tough sledding. I mean, I, don't, I think that's kind of how they lost in 2019 is they were ranked. I, they Everyone overlooked Vanderbilt you know, two years ago, and I'm probably going to tell the story at some point is two years ago, I had a story written already about how Missouri had won the game 
before I left for Nashville. Like I, re- I read, I had a column written about how the NCAA it was backed into a corner because Missouri was going to be six and one. They were going to enter the top twenty of the rankings that next week because of the upsets that happened, and yet you know they're still waiting on a review from the NCAA as to whether they can make a bowl, and they're already bowl eligible. I got a one on one with former athletic director Jim Sterk before the game in Nashville for my column about that story, and then Missouri lost and they didn't win again until twenty four hours before they fired Barry Odom. That's another story, though. But uh, just that's what overlooking can do, though. And I don't think we'll have a better opportunity to get into the Vanderbilt side of things. We talked with fellow USA Today Network reporter Aria Gerson, who covers the Commodores in Nashville. She kind of broke everything down for us and you know gave us you know what it's like from their perspective this week. So without further ado, here's my conversation from earlier this week with Aria Gerson. I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing well. First off, let's just start off. Tell me more about this year's Vanderbilt team. Uh, doesn't seem too good from the outside perspective, but I guess you could say the same about Mizzou. But just tell us more about this year's Vanderbilt team. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, nobody would disagree with the idea that, that they're not very good. Um, I do think that, you know, well, first of all, they they do have two wins, which is more wins than they had last year, which was zero wins. Um, I do think that there's a few interesting things about this team, um, the first being that they are very disciplined. They don't commit a lot of penalties. Even in their SEC road games that they played earlier this month against Florida and South Carolina, I believe they had three penalties in each of those games. So they don't commit a lot of penalties, and Clark Lee has kind of created them an identity on defense that is based around kind of wreaking havoc in terms of turnovers, um, sacks, quarterback hurries, things like that. Um, Vanderbilt doesn't have a lot of speed. They're not typically able to keep up with this type of talent that is on other SEC teams. But on the defense, they're trying to make up for that by taking the ball away, by getting sacked, by getting negative plays. Um, And they weren't really able to do that at the beginning of the season, but since SEC play has started, they've actually executed that strategy pretty well. Um, It's actually kind of – worked out a little bit better for them. Um, And so I think that, you know, finding that identity on defense will be kind of key. Uh, You know, Mizzou is probably the most winnable game left on their schedule. So if they hope to get an SEC win, you know, that's probably what they're going to have to do. Tell me more about the team offensively. It seems like Missouri really hasn't put together a full 60-minute performance yet in any of their seven games, and really a lot of it comes down to the downfall of the defensive line. Just, I know in the past that, you know, Vanderbilt has had good running backs. For just tell me more about how this team kind of works on offense. Right. So the offense has kind of been reached a little bit by injuries. Um, they had a good running back, Raymond Davis, but he got injured against Stanford, and he's out for the season. Um, and since then, the running game has really struggled. Now, that's not all on the running backs. It's you know, the offensive line has had trouble. A bunch of different tight ends have missed time due to injury. Um, and currently, well, so uh, Vanderbilt's original starting quarterback, Ken Seals, missed the last two games due to injury, and it's unclear when he's going to come back. 
so they use their backup. Mike Wright, Mike Wright has a completely different style. Ken Seals is more of a pocket passer. Um, Mike Wright is a dual threat. Uh, they both have different strengths and weaknesses, um, and so they make the offense look a little bit different when they're out there. But regardless, I think the biggest upside on Vanderbilt's offense outside the fact that they don't commit a lot of penalties is uh, the wide receivers. The wide receivers are actually quite talented in in terms of, you know, compared to the other units on the team. Um, Chris Pierce and Will Shepard have been top targets, and they have performed really well this year. It's just been very inconsistent. They do have some big play potential, um, but it's, it's just not been very consistent at all, and they have trouble scoring. Um, and so if Vanderbilt, you know, wants to win, they they will have to keep it a low-scoring game because they just can't win a shootout-type game, a high-scoring game. I know you weren't on the beat two years ago, but the last time Missouri did play at Vanderbilt kind of was a big turning point for Mizzou program. It was the first of five uh, straight losses for Barry Odom. Essentially, the Vanderbilt game then sprawled out of control and essentially cost him his job. Um, do you know if there's been any talk about that in, in Nashville last week when it was Derek Mason the time seemed like a really rejuvenating win for the program, but that it obviously didn't end up that way because I think that was his last, his last SEC win as, as Vanderbilt's head coach. But is there any kind of talk or movement about the last time that you played there? Well, so um, Vanderbilt does their press conferences with Clark Lee on Tuesdays, so we haven't spoken with him yet. He typically stays very focused on, you know, that week's opponent, uh, you know, last week is Mississippi State. So we haven't heard a lot of talk about Mizzou yet, but I think that's just because he hasn't spoken. But I assume, I mean, they know. Like, they know that they've lost uh, – you know, double-digit consecutive SEC games. And the last one that they won was against Mizzou. And there are some players left that, that were on that team that, you know, probably do have that in mind. But I think that, you know, more than just, you know, that was being the last SEC team that they beat, um, you know, if you if you look at the, the quality of the teams, you know, in November, Vanderbilt's playing Ole Miss, they're playing Tennessee, they're playing Kentucky, and those are, you know, those are teams that have had really good seasons. And so um, I think, you know, Mizzou has kind of just not had as good of a season as those. But, you know, it is kind of – it has kind of been, I guess, a history-making matchup in the past couple of years because last year there was Sarah Fuller in that game and, you know, their last SEC win two years before that. So, I mean, I'm sure I'm sure they're aware of that. <laughs> Fair enough, too, and I believe in Gary Pinkle's final year at Mizzou as well. That was a Vanderbilt win in Nashville. Not sure. I think in 17, Mizzou actually won that game. But getting back more to this year's matchup, uh, who are some of the difference makers that Mizzou fans should know on Vanderbilt just individually? You mentioned a few players here and there, but if, if Vanderbilt is going to end up, I mean, it, it's still about a more than two touchdown uh, Vegas is favoring mm-hmm. Mizzou by, which I, I don't know why that's, it's that big. I think around 10th is probably better because Mizzou's defense is leaking points everywhere. But just – who are some of the impact players Missouri should know on this year's Vanderbilt team? Right. So I mentioned Chris Pierce and Will Shepard. Those are two wide receivers um, who have shown some really good big play potential this year. Um, and so 
you know, if, if Vanderbilt is going to find something in its passing game, it's going to be most likely with those two, although the other receivers that they have are very good as well. Um, on the defense, I think uh, Jalen Mahoney, a defense, a cornerback, he has looked really good the past couple games. He's got a couple interceptions. Um, he had, he made a really good play against Mississippi State. It looked like an interception. It ended up getting overturned into an incomplete pass, but it was on third down, so it forced a fourth down. Um, he just jumped the route and, and made a play, so he's looked good. Um, Davion Davis on the defensive line, um, has been good. Really, um, a, a lot of the linebackers, Ethan Barr, Anthony Orgy, they've made some plays. Again, it's not a ton of speed, so they, they do give up big plays, but all of those players have, have had a part in wreaking that kind of havoc that I talked about earlier in terms of getting turnovers and interceptions. There's not really one player that does all of that. It's kind of the whole unit. Any one of them could, could step up in any given game. Um, and so definitely would, would keep an eye on, on some of those defensive players as well. And then whoever's at quarterback, uh, again, it's not really clear if Ken Fields will be back from his injury at this point, although he didn't dress for Mississippi State. So, you know, I don't have any word on this. I would guess that probably Mike Wright will start just because with the bye week coming up, that gives an extra week for Ken Fields to fully recover from his injury. But whichever one of them it is, you know, Ken Fields is a, is a pocket passer and he's more efficient. Mike Wright has more big play potential. He does more in the running game. Either way, you know, they do have some things that they do well. So if Vanderbilt can, can play, play that up for either of them, then, you know, that, that could end up making a difference. Tell us more about Clark Lee. Uh, we knew he came from Notre Dame. He's a Vanderbilt alum, but it kind of took us all a little bit surprised when at, at SEC Media Days he was like, Vanderbilt's the best job in the country or something along those lines. Uh, just what kind of energy has he brought to Nashville? Yeah, well, so I think the biggest thing is, you know, Clark Lee is a Vanderbilt alum, and he's from Nashville, and so he knows the area. He knows the school. He knows the program. Um, I think that will probably – it's hard to really make any conclusions about recruiting with him not even having brought in a class yet, really. But I think that will help in recruiting in terms of he knows what's unique about Vanderbilt and, and how to potentially sell that for, for people in this area, which is, you know, he's trying more of a regional strategy with kids from Tennessee, kids from, you know, Birmingham, Atlanta, like from the South. And, um, but, you know, team-wise, like right now, he's very much kind of trying to start over and say, you know, this is team one. Uh, the the previous years are not a factor. Like, this is not what Vanderbilt should be. Like, redefining what Vanderbilt football means and things like that. Um, and so that's kind of his mantra, I guess, is just kind of wiping away the past and building something new, which is interesting given his history as an alum. But, you know, he's he seems like he's detail-oriented, and I, I do – I am impressed with the work that he and defensive coordinator Jesse Minter have done 
with the defense because they really looked directionless at the beginning of the season. They did not have an identity. And they have developed an identity, and they found something that the defense does well. And they've schemed around that and kind of tried to create good situations for that. And, you know, it did show up against South Carolina. They didn't win that game, but the defense played really well in that game up until the last drive, kept it low scoring, and kept it a game that Vanderbilt had a chance to win in the fourth quarter, which is what Clark Lee's trying to do. He's trying to keep close games uh, that, that Vanderbilt has a chance to win and then just hope that they come out on top in the end. And so I am impressed with, with that aspect of it. How do you kind of see this one playing out? Do you think that Vanderbilt can pull this upset, or do you think that maybe even even with Mizzou's kind of shortcoming this year, they just have too much talent, and Vanderbilt's going to have to have another winless SEC kind of campaign here? I think that it's possible for Vanderbilt to win because they did almost beat South Carolina, and so they showed that it is possible. I would not say that that's the most likely outcome of the game, um, I think you still have to go with the more talented team, which is Mizzou. But there is a path, I think, to, to Vanderbilt winning, and that is forcing a lot of turnovers, staying on the field, you know, get, taking away opportunities from – scoring opportunities from Mizzou, um, bending and not breaking on defense, and having enough offense to – be able to stay in the game, and then just, again, not committing penalties, waiting and hoping for Mizzou to commit the turnovers and the penalties. Um, that's kind of what happened against South Carolina. I think South Carolina had 10 penalties and multiple turnovers, and that's, you know, what's going to need to happen if Vanderbilt's going to win. Um, I do think that Vanderbilt, you know, if, if Mizzou fans are looking for a reason to be optimistic, you know, it's Mizzou's run defense that has really struggled, and Vanderbilt's running game is really bad and just has not been productive all year, and especially with their best running back out for the season. I just don't see the run game really being able to get going against any opponent, and they've been kind of more pass-heavy, you know, to compensate for that. And so in that sense, you know, not necessarily a great matchup. But Vanderbilt, if they win, isn't going to be with offense. It's going to be with defense. Where, where can everyone in Missouri kind of catch up with uh, the opponents respected this week? Yeah, so you can find me at uh, Tennessean.com, T-E-N-N-E-S-S-E-A-N.com. You can find all my work there. That was Aria Gerson. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Gannett, uh, you know, and in, in, in the USA Today Network team. Thank you so much for joining us, and I'll see you on Saturday. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. We would like to thank our sponsors for the Columbia Daily Tribune's Mizzou Sports Podcast, University of Missouri Healthcare. University of Missouri Healthcare is proud to be the official sponsor of MU Athletics. Blue Events. Let Blue create the perfect event. Their passion for food, Service and presentation ensures that you will have a seamless and memorable event, no matter the size. They will work with you to bring your vision to life. Phyllis Nichols State Farm Insurance. There when things go wrong, here to help life go right. The Mizzou Sports Podcast is brought to you by Zaxby's, the home of handmade-to-order chicken, salads, and more than a dozen mild-to-wild sauces.
Stop by your neighborhood Zaxby's today. Follow Mizzou football with the Tribune's Tiger Extra newsletter. Sign up at ColumbiaTribune.com slash Tiger Extra for stories, galleries, and podcasts in your inbox every Wednesday, Saturday, and Sunday. So, John, question. With Auburn firing Gus Malzahn, it leaves Ed Ogeron as the SEC's only coach who has beaten Nick Saban. Who's going to be the next SEC coach to beat Saban? Well, I don't think he'll be the guy that a lot of people think he will be. Jimbo Fisher, Texas A&M. I like Lane Kiffin at Ole Miss. He almost beat Saban last year, and he almost beat Saban when he was at Tennessee. Fisher promised he was going to thump Saban's rump whenever Alabama comes to College Station. I think he's got a shot. He improved Texas A&M to 9-1 last year. He's got a national championship to his name. If Haynes King is the real deal, he's got an early opportunity in October to beat Nick Saban. Look at Saban's track record for losses. It's usually to a great quarterback. Cam Newton, Johnny Manziel, or Joe Burrow. Matt Corral at Ole Miss, I think, could be the best quarterback in the league. I'm Blake Topmeyer, and this is SEC Football Unfiltered, a new podcast from the USA Today Network. Each week, we'll discuss the hottest topics that matter to the passionate fan bases of the SEC. I've covered the SEC for eight years. As for my co-host, longtime sports columnist John Adams. Let's just say he's got a few decades on me. Not as many decades as some people think. Contrary to popular opinion, I did not cover General Nealon, but I did interview Bear Bryant and I interviewed Nick Saban and I covered Archie Manning and Peyton Manning. More insightful interview, John. Bear Bryant, Archie Manning, Steve Spurrier, or Johnny Majors? Gotta go with Steve Spurrier there. He's the great quipster. SEC Football Unfiltered debuts this summer. Let John and I be your tour guides from the season opener through the national championship. Subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you once again to Aria Gerson for joining us on this week's Mizzou Sports Podcast. Definitely great to hear from an opponent's perspective. Now looking ahead to the rest of the season for Missouri and looking at kind of their bowl hopes. Make a bowl prediction right now. Does Missouri get the three wins? No. I don't think so either. Uh, I think that if I honestly think if they are five and six going to Arkansas, they pretty much, I, hate, I don't see quit Neil Edgerman's team. I do think Florida is still the easier matchup between the two. I think Georgia is going to expose them this weekend. I really do. I think Georgia is going to absolutely kick the crap out of them. And so there's going to be a route where Neil Edgerman can look at it and go like, okay, that's where Florida's weak. We can attack that and go. And, I, I think there's a little bit of a rivalry between Dan Mullen and Eli Drinkwitz. Remember last year at halftime, there was almost, they almost got in a fight, and there was a fight between the two teams. That's somewhere on the back of the mind of Eli Drinkwitz. If he, he'll never admit it, and I'm going to ask him in three weeks about you know that incident, and that's the memory of that Mizzou-Florida game last year. He won't admit it, or he'll say, we're past it, we're thinking about this year. It, it's there. Eli Drinkwitz is a very forgive-not-forget kind of guy. I, He's thinking about it because Dan Mullen wore a Darth Vader mask at the press conference, and you don't forget that. Can he be Luke Skywalker? So uh, I, I do think that if Missouri is going to win three games this year and get to a bowl, Vanderbilt, South Carolina, Florida are their best chances. You can get rid of Georgia, so it really is three of the other four that Missouri has to win. Yeah, and this is barring that. I mean, nothing crazy happens to Arkansas in the next handful of weeks, which kind of changes that uh, that that matchup on its head. Which I mean, in, in a season this wild, it's, we've seen so many so many things just go strange. I mean, we we started out this year thinking Mizzou was going to be eight and three and I mean, eight and four. I mean, so you never know and. I think that's exciting, especially that Black Friday game. I mean, you never really know what's going to happen. And um, but right now, yeah, the more that you think about it, the more the Florida might be 
the better matchup. Might, I agree. Yeah. yeah, it might not be the better game, uh, but, you know, it all comes down to just semantics. Before the season, we were thinking this is the weakness Missouri clinches bowl eligibility. They yeah. would have been 5-1 and one going into the A&M matchup. They, we think we both thought they would have lost that. Then Vanderbilt was like, okay, bowl eligibility. Now we can concentrate on the rest of the year. Um, so now it looks like just this is ultimate damage control here. And I don't think anybody's phoning it in for next year, knowing the reinforcements that are coming in another year with Drinkwitz implementing a system and really getting everything under control, especially because you're probably going to lose Tyler Beatty and a couple offensive. I think Mike Mayetti's gone after this year. You're going to have to retool several things after this year, no matter what. But, you know, I think that these final five games will say a lot about the direction of the program for Missouri. You can get rid of, I mean, I really don't want to say you want you can get rid of Vanderbilt and you can get rid of Georgia's kind of a guaranteed win and a guaranteed loss and the last three games are really about their fight but if Missouri takes care of business with Vanderbilt that's a good sign if Missouri shows any kind of that rocky spirit which they didn't two years ago against actually two years ago it was actually direct weekends again it was actually back-to-back weekends I believe of at uh Nashville and Atlanta there might have been a bye week in between but those were two games in a row actually uh two years ago and so now you look here, and there's a similar kind of proving, proving ground upcoming from Missouri here. Where you know, does a six and six season with getting to a bowl look really good at this point? Yeah. D- is four and eight still on the table for Missouri? Yeah. <laughs> so, and and I think that those two things look very very different here. Yeah, and especially when you talk about um, putting up a fight and. And the the one game that intrigues me the most out of all this is slowly becoming South Carolina because that's that's a team that may not have the the, the talent that you might think of in terms of South Carolina teams of the old. I mean, with yeah, this is not a Spurrier team. No, and no. It's, there's no Alshon Jeffrey walking through that door. Connor Shaw is not coming down. That's for sure. Davion Clowney's not coming through. Marcus mm-hmm. Lattimore's not there. Yeah, uh, Connor I'm, Shaw from a zoo fan. Sorry. <laughs> Oops. Um, I uh, always think back to the, the clowny play where he just uh, clowned that Michigan running back in the Outback Bowl. Right. Um, right. One of my favorite plays of all time. Um, but uh, you talk about a team that just doesn't really, you know, that, that puts up a fight. I mean, and I'm Shane Beamer is a guy that you can really tell is getting to his players and he's kind of getting the most out of them and maybe the talent isn't there, but it will be. And it's that kind of fight that you kind of think of, oh, can Drinkwitz kind of pull the same fight out of his Mizzou players it, to be to be honest with you I think he can and I mean the big reason why is I'm watching the back end of the A&M game I mean you talk about the defensive struggles I mean but holding A&M to just seven points in the second half I mean yeah it wasn't they still lost by multiple touchdowns but that was more on the offenses and offensive end than anything so let's just get back to this weekend does Missouri beat Vanderbilt and what's your final score yeah they're gonna be Vanderbilt and it's gonna be uh let's see I'd say like 35 20 so that means Vanderbilt covers yeah you didn't pick Vanderbilt to cover in our picks? No. Okay. <laughs> I, I did. I, I respect it. But. I, I, I don't know if you listened to my radio spot from yesterday with KTGR, but I did predict 35-21 Missouri on there. So I'm going to stick there. So we're, we're calling the same thing for once, which is which is pretty good. Uh, let's go into just some more college football talk. I know you're not a Heisman voter, but who would your ballot be as of right now with your top three? I can it's, go first because I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure I got who my top three are in my head. All right, go ahead. So right now, Matt Corral is my number one. Um, at the end of the day, just there's a little bit of voting for these awards of you go with the best guy or do you go with the most valuable player. And if it's most valuable, you absolutely have to go Matt Corral. If it's best, you might have to go, I mean, for maybe a, a kid. Maybe you go for Bryce Young. Maybe you go for still Matt Corral. But I think it's Matt Corral one, Bryce Young two, 
And then any pick of players at number three. I mean, I really, Jordan Davis from Georgia, I think, is having a phenomenal year for them. C.J. Stroud at Ohio State's kind of right there. So number three is kind of still a little bit up in the air. I actually think Kenneth Walker at Michigan State might be my number three, the more I think about it. So, yeah, I'm going to go Corral, Young, Kenneth Walker from Michigan State, number three. That's what I would do. Okay, because I, I, the more you talked about it, the more names popped in my head. And then my, my number one is the same as yours is Matt Corral. I mean, to me, the Heisman wasn't isn't necessarily about the best player. It's just about the most exciting, the most electric. It's about the one that can produce the most and, and make college football college football. And I always think back to the discussion between um, I believe it was a 20, 10, 2010 or 2011 Heisman voting between Robert Griffin III and, and Andrew Luck, which was Andrew Luck was a better quarterback. Robert Griffin III was a, just the more electrifying player. So much fun to watch. And that's why Matt Corral is number one for me. I mean, a guy that can run, a guy that's just gritty, a guy that just makes plays and is just fun. I mean, I've always joked about you know when you see a fun play out there, and refs will overturn it because of something, and you're like, well, why can't you just let that play stand because it was cool? Let it stand. And Matt Corral is that kind of player where he makes plays, and I'm like, let that stand because that was a cool play. Uh, but and that goes into my number two, uh, which is uh, Kayvon Thibodeau out of Oregon. I mean, I personally, I think one of the most electrifying defensive players in the country. You you can see what he what he can do, especially against UCLA. I mean, two sacks that that game. You can tell he was the best player in the uh, on the field just in general. Uh, but that goes in my number three, which is Desmond Ritter. I mean, that's a guy. He was in the list for me too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that's a guy that uh, I mean, not not biased that he beat Notre Dame and Notre Dame's home field, snapping a streak of like twenty four consecutive home wins. But whatever. Um, uh, but that, that's a guy that that's he really epitomizes what makes the team great. I mean, he doesn't turn the ball over. He, he he's smart with the football. And if you're um, New Missouri uh, uh, director of uh, Desiree, yeah, Desiree yeah, Reed Francois, yeah, if you're director of communications for um, the administration, Ryan Coslin, I mean, oh, yeah, yeah. It, I mean, huge came, came from Cincinnati. I mean, I remember watching with the press box. I mean, that's a guy that loves Desmond Ritter, and I, it rubbed off on me a little bit because you could see what what Desmond Ritter means to that Cincinnati team. I mean, he's the the epitome of leadership when it comes to a team that's probably going to be in the college football playoff this this year the first group of five team to ever make the playoff yeah that, that's going to be great to watch and that goes into our next art, uh kind of topic of who are your current four um and right now i guess for me georgia would be one cincinnati be two you still gotta go oklahoma kind of right there number three undefeated conference champion and for me the winner of that michigan michigan state game might be you know, at that number four spot, I still think a Big Ten team probably make it in. You got to disregard the Pac-12. I mean, at the end of the day, multiple teams got to lose to get a Pac-12. Whether it's the Oregon Ohio State argument out there or an ACC team, that, that that's just far off. The winner of the SEC will make it, and you're assuming that Alabama there is going to lose in the SEC title game as of right now to Georgia, and that's not a guarantee either because if a one-loss Alabama trumps and knocks out you know i think you get two sec teams before you have before you have to pick the undefeated conference champion i'm sorry like i mean does a one loss alabama get in or undefeated stumbling along oklahoma i would go oklahoma just because they're undefeated and they and, and they have the and they have the the resume and the repertoire of being a college football playoff team just period but at the, it, it would be a discussion. It would be a discussion. It'd be a lot lengthier than a lot of past discussions that people have had. Like, hey, do you leave out this team for that team? And uh, undefeated, we've seen carries a lot of weight, uh, especially when it comes to Power Five teams. And uh, but, but I, I mean, I, I the only reason I or the only way that I disagree with you with your picks is I've got obviously Georgia one, Cincinnati two, Oklahoma, 
And it's going to be Ohio State just because whoever wins this week out of Michigan, Michigan State is not like it's they're not going to lose. They're not going to beat Ohio State. Maybe. Maybe. But my, my thing is Ohio State always finds win, ways to win that game. And yeah, they were humbled against Oregon. Yeah, they were humbled early in the season, but they haven't lost since. I mean, maybe they're not the the same juggernaut that they were last year with Justin Fields, but they still got Chris Olave. I mean, they still got they still got the pieces to put it together. And I, if you're going to ask me who I pick between Michigan and Ohio State, and at every time it's, it's Ohio State. Jim Harbaugh hasn't beaten Ohio State, and he's given me a reason to believe he should. Fair enough. I might uh, Michigan State. I think it might actually win this weekend, and then Mel Tucker. I think might have a little bit of a shot because people forget that Michigan State has already made a playoff too. Uh, but I mean that that's this is why the playoff needs to be expanded. We shouldn't be choosing between an undefeated conference champion and the better one loss team. Like at the end of the day, the eye test is one thing, but so is the common sense test to me. At the end of the day, Oklahoma plays Alabama. Who are you taking? Alabama. Then why are you going to put Oklahoma in, in the playoff o- over Alabama if they beat Georgia, who's clearly the number one team in the country? This, but th- that's the conversation. But that's always the conversation. You can always play the what-if game. Like, well, but if you're going to say, well, eight times out of, out of ten, Alabama's going to win that game. But Based on pre- precedence past, the, the common sense test does more than the eye test. Remember last year when it was Notre Dame made the playoff and Alabama shellacked them. And everybody you know, knew that Alabama was the best team in the country. No matter who they played, they were probably going to win. And so that kind of eye test, when you look at just you know those kinds of things, and, and trust me, I want some fresh teams in the playoff too. I would rather see Alabama not make it, it personally. But if Alabama beats Georgia, I don't know how you can deny them. And you can't deny Georgia either. So who gets left out? I hope it wouldn't be Cincinnati at that time, especially if they went out when you deny the group of five champion there. And we'll have a better sense for that when the college ball rankings come out in a couple weeks. But I would hope that based on the precedent you have there, that because Cincinnati has been higher ranked the entire season and did everything they could do as opposed to you know almost losing to Kansas on the road, which Oklahoma did, and they're not out of the water yet because they get Tech and they still have to play Oklahoma State and they got a couple tough games left, and so does Cincinnati. But you know I, I would just hope that if it comes down to it, you use more common sense than the eye test, and if that's why expanding the playoff, and I've said this a few times, is the ultimate option there. And the only way that works, you shouldn't be debating who are the four best teams. And it's like, yeah, no matter what the cutoff, and you know, we'd be talking about, I guess, if Kentucky or Wake Forest is in or not, if it's like at the twelve-team playoff. But that's more of a ridiculous argument. And sorry, you should have, you know, played better or something. I don't know, you know, down the line, that's more of a ridiculous argument where you, when you have more straws to choose from, as opposed to, do you take clearly probably the second best team in the country who just beat the first best team in the country or the undefeated power five conference champion it's just a ridiculous argument to me yeah yeah it's a good point and i mean you you, I mean, you hit the nail on the head especially when it comes to expansion i mean who who wouldn't want more good football who wouldn't want to to, to put everyone on that limitless test saying hey maybe even as a top 12 or even as just the top 10 you just kind of say hey these are the best 10 teams out there who's the best out of all of them who can win on any given saturday so i mean that you you won't see me arguing against that no and that's a little bit of karma just i made fun of chris for dropping his phone of mine just almost fell on the floor i was gonna bring it up but you did i know i i gotta call myself out like i made fun of you for and then it just immediately almost happens to me too uh, so let's talk a little bit basketball before we end this week's episode. Uh, Missouri women's basketball has their first scrimmage actually tonight against Lindenwood, a D2 school in the St. Louis area. I don't remember who they play a week from now, but it's Thursday, Thursday, Thursday to start their season. Two exhibitions, and then they start with – I'm blanking off the top of my Murray head. Murray State. 
Murray State. That sounds right. Uh, and then they start there November 11th. The men opening up against Central Michigan on November 9th. And then it'll be basketball season for a little while. And then, I guess, two weeks from today, we'll signal one month until the border war. So things are getting crazy underway here. And so we'll be bringing coverage of that and topics about that way quicker than we expected. We're still talking very much football mode here, but still, basketball's real, real close. It's coming up, and it kind of snuck up on me a little bit, especially last week when I think it was Monday we had the first women's basketball availability. We sit down and we start talking about uh, you know ball screen defense and uh, spacing on the floor and these kinds of different basketball terms, and I'm like, oh, wait, it's just... This is a little different than talking about you know cover two and, and the nickel defense and Steve Wilkes and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, definitely different. Uh, I think as of right now, Missouri women's basketball is the last team in in Charlie Cream's bracketology, means they're 11 and 11 seed in the NCAA tournament, and we need to see that level of progression for them. Not much is known or expected from the men. I think they were picked 10th in the, which is I think they were only picked seventh last year with the whole, how much depth they had returning, which was ridiculous to start, but also exactly where they ended up. But you know, I digress. Um, but, you know, there's just who and what makes this team go. We might not know for a little while. We know Kobe Brown's going to play a big role. We know Javon Pickett's going to play a big role. We believe Jordan Wilmore is going to play a larger role. We believe Boogie Coleman and Deshaun Gordon and Amari Davis are going to play big roles. But how they all combine, we don't know. And there's five freshmen, you know, and a lot of them fill in different roles for the team. We have some wing players. You have Anton Brookshire, who's a point guard. You have Yaya Kate, who's 6'11". But coming off of ACL surgery, you have Kobe Brown's younger brother, Caleb. Just There's a lot of moving pieces with this team that this makes them kind of the biggest question mark for a revenue team that I think we've ever seen at Missouri, at least in my time here. Yeah, and it's funny because on the opposite spectrum with, with the women's team, I mean, they're they're basically what Mizzou men's basketball team was last year, where they have so many solid returning returners, and I mean, Asia Blackwell. Uh, you can kind of look at Haley Frank, but also Ladeja Williams. I mean, players that all average over double figures, and uh, it's a team that made the WNIT last year, so... That's it's it's funny how it's kind of opposite end of the ends of the spectrum, but I mean I, I trust Conzo to to figure out his team and kind of put it together. It's a little tough, especially when you look at the non conference schedule at the beginning of the season. Um, obviously, bragging rights and border war, that's a tough measuring stick. To in Illinois aside, obviously um, losing to Loyal in the NCAA tournament, I feel like kind of knocked them down a little bit from the prestige that they had going into the tournament. But at the end of the day, it's still it's still an important game. It's still bragging rights it's still a rivalry and same goes with kansas too and that obviously being the the program that kansas is and then kentucky not very far along after that too so um we'll find out what we'll find out what mizzou men's basketball is made of really quickly and that's kind of exciting especially as you kind of get into it and you kind of get a feel of okay like this is where we're at this is what we're going to go with um and especially when it comes to the offensive part of it too i mean just looking at how many players left the offensive output that they had and uh, I'm just and I'm just interested to in seeing what what they do. Like, what do they have? Like, are they have shooters? Are they spaced well? Who knows? Who knows? But we will find out. Anything else you want to talk about before we get off this week? I don't know. Uh, are you going to find a bagel place in Nashville? I already, oh, I already have a bagel place in Nashville. Trust me, I've already been there. I, I got bagel places everywhere, buddy. Now, uh, proper bagel. Shout out uh, right off Belmont's campus in Nashville. I've been there. Best bagel I've ever had. Not in New York or in Israel. In Nashville, Tennessee. Believe it or not. It's the southern hospitality that is that is Nashville, Tennessee. Best bagel I've ever had that is not New York or uh, Israel in Nashville, Tennessee. In the, off of Music Row in Nashville, Tennessee. Crazy. All right, I'll write that down. Yeah. 
Oh, well. But yeah, I have, I have a ton of places picked out. Yes, I know that's kind of my reputation. But for Chris Kwasinski, who needs to try more bagels, and Eric Blum, well, I've heard myself in third person. This is going off the rails. But for Chris Kwasinski, I've been Eric Blum. Thank you for listening to this week's Mizzou Sports Podcast, and we'll see you next time. going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.